when I was <clears throat> when I was speaking with John uh, a few months ago, when he was kind of reaching out to different people about speaking on your summer series, he asked if I wanted to speak about bridge building in the culture because he knows the things I write about, the things I speak about, really a lot of the nature of uh, of my writing, my reading podcast, and even what I speak about often is related to the culture, how we can change the culture really around us through our influence. But I said that I wanted to talk about the family, and the reason why is that the family is the precursor to the culture. You don't have a good, a solid culture without solid families. There, There is no Christian culture without Christian homes. So it, it would be getting the cart before the horse to address one uh, before the other. So I'm speaking tonight about the home. Now, the title is Building Bridges. I don't know if there's any any kind of uh, PowerPoint. Well, I guess they asked if I had one. I said no. If there was one, Building Bridges in the Home may be the one that was up there. But I, but I want to say I, I understand the nature of that. We're talking about breaking down uh, barriers and crossing gaps and reestablishing networks between people, between husbands, wives, mom and the children, dad and the children, and and so on. We're talking about making these connections again in the family. But I have to say at the outset, when I think about building bridges in the home, it's a bit of a weird concept because I've never seen a home that had a bridge from one room to the next. What, what I want to say up front is, perhaps it is, and I think that it is, that in many homes, you, you almost have to cross a bridge from husband to wife and from wife to husband and from parent to child. But the lesson that I want to give tonight is, go across the bridge, get them, bring them back under one roof, and then burn the bridge. Because that's, that's the nature of the Christian family. It's a unit. It is a unit that is like-minded. It's led by a godly man who has a godly vision and a, and a desire to sacrifice and to lead the family to salvation. So uh, that's that's the first thing that I wanted to say. Now, how I want to do the lesson tonight is kind of if you read Paul's letters, he always starts with the you know the foundational theology and then he moves into the practical stuff. So I want to do it in that order. I want to start by establishing some theology, some things that we just say that's that's a given. This is foundational, but I want to start there and then have that flow into some uh, some very direct applications for husbands, fathers, mothers, parents as a unit, patriarchs of families, children, and uh, and so on. So let's begin with the theology, and then we'll move into the other things as well. Starting with we have to talk about the purpose of the family because in the world we live in, the, nobody, for one, nobody knows what a family is. I think ABC, ABC Family says they've got a new kind of family. You can, you can look on TV and every family looks different. None of them look like what you read in the Bible. But there is a, a specific way that a family is to be ordered and families serve a purpose. Families have a function. Families are microcosms of something that is, uh, you know, the microcosm is, you think there's the cosmological image and a microcosm is just a small image of the big image. A family is a, is a very small image of something really big. And if we break down the microcosm, then the big message isn't being sent out into the cosmos. You'll learn some of these things if you read in the book of Ephesians. But families are vital, and I would say they are the central mechanism by which we wage the warfare against the enemy. 
The family is the primary weapon against a godless culture. Our weapons are not carnal, but we have weapons. We are not waging war with swords and clubs, but we are waging war. And the enemy knows that if he's going to succeed, if he's going to win, what must he do? He must break down families. He must make for absent fathers. He must make for disobedient children. He must make for men that don't sacrifice for their wives and wives who do not submit and respect and be subject to their husbands. The enemy has turned everything upside down. That has been his pathway to destroying culture and society. So what I'm arguing tonight is that if we're going to wage war in this culture, the way to do it is by reestablishing the family unit in godly principles. So let's begin there. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And this, you know, there's two stories. Mark goes from this story that is related to marriage and he immediately goes into something related to children. This is not a coincidence. These are, uh, they're connected and they flow very well. But I want you to turn to Mark 10, beginning in verse 2. It says, Pharisees came up uh, to Jesus and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want you to hone in on a couple of phrases. The first one is, from the beginning of creation. The second one is, male and female. The third one is, one flesh. And the fourth one is, inseparable. Let's talk about each of those just for a very brief moment. We're establishing foundational things. There are some things in the church that for some time we've said, those are givens. This is a given. And the things that we take as a given are the things that we don't speak of. We don't speak of them for a generation or two. It's no longer a given. We're looking right now at a world that has forgotten the things that at one time were forgiven. But I want to establish a few principles about marriage that come right at the beginning of creation. Number one, the marital institution and the family by extension is not a cultural construct that is open to the reordering of society. Jesus brings us back to the beginning, and he says the family, marriage, this unit is created by God. It's designed by God. It's the foundational institution in society. It's the first thing that God created after he created every physical thing. It's his first institution. It's made by God, created by God, has a specific purpose. And Jesus and the other New Testament writers, they're always calling us back to that. Those first couple chapters in Genesis are, it's amazing how much is there. And a lot of times we think, well, if something's not commanded, then what's the big deal if I break ways from it? And yet these things in Genesis that are not commanded per se, they are commanded by implication in that this is how God made the world. God created marriage, God created the family, 
and it's his unit. Number two, the marital institution involves one man and one woman. In this society, marriage can be anything. Man can marry man, so we say. One uh, writer that I like to read says it's homosexual mirage, not homosexual marriage. But a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, a person can marry a tree. I mean, these are real things that really do happen. And our idea of marriage is it's, it's one person with whoever or whatever it is that they want. And yet Jesus is saying from the very beginning, it's one man and one woman. That's how God defines it. Number three, the marital institution involves the joining of one man and one woman. It isn't two people coming together to live separate lives with separate bank accounts, separate interests, separate purposes. It's two people that were once separate coming under one roof. It's two become one. The woman is coming into the home, and his mission then becomes her mission. See, God set up Adam with a mission. He gave Adam a purpose. Fill the earth and subdue it. And she came along, and she's assisting in that mission. So his mission becomes her mission. His last name becomes her last name. His bank account becomes hers and vice versa. Her body becomes his body. His body becomes her body. And the two are made to be one flesh. This is the design of God, and this is what he has to say about it. Number four, the marital institution is not a mere social contract that can be crossed off or nullified or canceled as man sees fit. See, Jesus says what God has joined together, let not man separate. This institution is not a social contract merely. There's a social component to it. But marriage is an institution given by God and it's stamped by God. Let not man separate the thing which God has joined together. Marriage was and is intended by God to be permanent. Now, what's it all about? What's it all about? What What's the purpose of it? You know, as I... You know, I do a lot of reading. I, I pay attention quite a bit to what's happening out in, you know, the world of philosophy, the world of psychology, the news, broader culture. I like to pay attention because I want to know what's happening and the things that should be addressed from the pulpit because certainly our people are hearing the very same things. What is it that the world thinks of marriage? What is it? Well, for one, they say it's, it's just a, it's a thing that, you know, that's not for everybody. You don't need to get married. Well, the fact is not everybody needs to get married. There are some people that Paul says are born eunuchs and they are clearly not by God to get married. And yet that's not most people. Most people are not natural born celibates that should live their lives. as Most people should get married. And there's a purpose for it. Within broader culture and broader society, the purpose that they say is that it's about being happy. It's about finding someone that can make you happy, can make you feel happy can just give you those butterflies in the stomach. Well, anybody that's been married for any period of time at all knows that that goes away pretty quickly, doesn't it? The butterflies don't last for years. They may not last for months. The purpose of God in marriage goes well beyond what society thinks that it is. And, of course, the collapse of marriage and the collapse of the family is because we think that's what it is. No longer fulfilled by this person. I fell out of love with this person. This person doesn't do for me what they did at the beginning, and therefore I'm going to cut ties so that I can be my authentic self and pursue after what makes me happy. 
But we see a very foundational reason and purpose for marriage that follows just after this discussion on marriage. In Mark chapter 10, it says they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. So you have these families. Jesus is there. The crowds are there. These these family units are there. Husbands, wives, sons and little sons and daughters are there. They're all there. Jesus is healing them and he's teaching And these family units, these mothers and fathers, what were they doing? What were the mothers and fathers doing? They were bringing their children to Jesus. They were on this unified purpose, this unified mission. They'd heard about Jesus. His fame had spread everywhere. They knew who who he was, what he was about. And the idea was, I want my kid to be at the feet of Jesus. That, That was what they were doing. This was their function, and this was their purpose. Get the children to the king. Get the children into the arms of the sovereign Lord. And the thing that strikes me, so so you have marriages established, and just immediately after it, you see this idea of children being there. That has something to do with God's mission. That has something to do with God's purpose for the world. Back in the beginning of Genesis, God said, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now it's established again after Noah and, you know, after the ark, God said it again to Noah. The psalmist said it again in the middle of biblical history. And even in the New Testament, the idea is reiterated again by Paul. So you have this idea of bearing children, filling the earth. What are we doing with them? A kid isn't just to make me happy. There's something there. There's a big purpose here. Again, we're, we're talking about deep things that go beyond just merely my personal interests. But these parents are getting their children into the arms of Jesus. And the thing that strikes me is that you had these parents that are on mission to get their children into the presence of Jesus. And the very ones that were inhibiting this, the ones that were trying to stop this, was the ones that should have had the big idea. They should have had the picture. The disciples were the ones that were trying to stop this. Isn't that what it says? They were bringing the children and the disciples rebuked them. Now, my question is, why, why is it that a disciple of Jesus would see it as his purpose or, or would be desirous to stop the children from going into the presence of the Lord? We have to think about the church. Jesus is sitting up here teaching. Maybe children are coming and they're saying, now's not the time. Maybe, that, maybe it was something along those lines. But I think that the bigger idea, and I think it's often this way, is that we think that religion is, is for the big people. The deep teachings of Jesus Christ are for the big people. Kids can, can color a picture of Noah's Ark. Kids can make a, a, a craft in a classroom. But you, you, we even have churches that, that split up between you've got big people church and then there's Children's church. And we separate out in that way. This is the same kind of idea. I think that one of the things is we expect that our children are going to be dis- become disciples by osmosis. They're going to watch mom and dad. They're going to see our example. They're going to see that we went to church. And they're going to see that we live, uh, you know, basically moral lives, and that once they're adults, we can then speak to them about the foundational things. And, and, and perhaps they'll just fall right in line with what it means to be a disciple. The disciples were the ones telling the children, don't go directly to Jesus. And Jesus stopped them and said, they do need to come. I don't think we're very different. 
We have one church. I pay it, you know, we do, we, one of the things we do well in the brotherhood is lectureships. And what I mean by doing well is we do a lot of them. There's one after the next. You can almost go to a lectureship every weekend. Somewhere around the country, there's some church that's putting on a lectureship or some group of churches that are putting on a lectureship. You pay attention to the kinds of topics that are being given. And the topics are these. It's one lectureship after the next about evangelism, about the Great Commission, about evangelizing the nations and bringing Jesus to the nations, reaching the nations for Jesus. We have door-knocking campaigns with our strangers. We spend millions of dollars on overseas missions. But we're failing to disciple our own children. We're failing to disciple our own children. Church, right now, I need you to hear this and understand this. We are in the middle right now. We are in the middle of losing our third generation of children. Look at the numbers. This isn't just made up. We're in the middle right now of losing our third generation of children. Watch what Jesus says. When the disciples tried to hinder the children from coming, Jesus rebuked them, and he said something that I think is profound. And and as leaders over churches, this is where I really believe we need to hone in. Jesus said, to such, he said, don't hinder them. Let them come to me. Let the children come to me. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is it that Jesus is saying? Well, who, who, what group in all of society, if, you, if, you're to, if you're just to lay out every possible demographic that is there, black, white, Latin American, male, female, rich, poor, lay out all of the potential demographics, and which group does Jesus say is the most likely to receive the kingdom? Children, and at what point in their life are they most likely to receive it? When they're a child. Jesus says that you have to become like them. The kingdom belongs to them. To such, the kingdom belongs to such as these. The time to get them is when they are young. This is why Deuteronomy 6 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen, so they're, they're getting ready. The king, the kingdom of Israel is now established. The promise of God has, 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 uh, been, has come to fruition. There's now a land. There's a people, they, they have God as their king, they're going into the land, and this instruction, this sermon is being given. And he says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, the thing that strikes me is Israel was going to be a kingdom of priests. Israel was going to be a kingdom that was serving as a priest for all of the nations. They would be this light to the nations. They'd be this bright people to the nations. And yet God's first thing isn't go into the kingdom and go to this Canaanite neighbor and go to that Philistine over there and I want you to go to the Gergesites over here. And That's not what he says. What's he say? 
in the establishment of the kingdom, the building of the kingdom, what does he say? What's foundational? Teach these things diligently. That is with all of your might, with, with all of your heart, you're doing it proactively and actively. There's forethought and intention and desire for it. Teach these things diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down at night and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The idea here is if Israel was going to maintain its status as the kingdom of God in the world, they would have to raise up faithful children. The kingdom's always one generation away from being invisible. The proverb writer says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Paul in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. So fathers, speaking to fathers, This is what New Testament Paul, this is right before he gets into this big section on spiritual warfare. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the principalities, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's going to demand that we have all of our wits about us. And in this little microcosm of the family, which represents something much bigger, it's going to demand obedience to the design of God. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't, don't be impatient. Don't, don't be rude. Don't be short with them. Don't, don't provoke them. That's not the job of a father. Look around and see that's a lot of fathers. That's the way they are. But he says, here's the job. Bring up your children In the discipline, so there is discipline. There will be spankings. There there will be, you know, lessons learned. There will be tears cried. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's Jesus. From their youth, from that, you know, when they're able to sit on your lap, talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about God. Establish within them this moral compass this way of seeing the world which is like Christ. Now, I want you to see something that is profoundly compelling to my overall point tonight. And I, just put, I want to put out there in basic terms, here's my point. My point is, as I look out in broader society, it's collapsing. The family's broken. Our political situation is a complete disaster. Morally, there was a time where, you know, you'd have a couple old men sitting next to one another. They may be using bad language. They may be cursing. But if an old lady walked down the street, they would zip, zip their lips. And there's some idea. There was something there. Well, that's gone now. I'll be standing in line with my kids, and the person in front of me is using every kind of colorful language you can imagine. No, no mind for the little children right here. It's the state that we're in. Here's, here's my suggestion. Here's what I'm arguing. The way that we undo that, and I believe we absolutely can. In fact, I believe we're called by God to do so. Here's where it starts. It starts by taking our focus. See, we jumped, we jumped the pond. We put our emphasis on Africa rather than right next to me in my own house. What I'm saying is 
We need to turn our emphasis. We need to put all of our attention right now onto our homes. That is, husbands, wives, the way that they relate to one another. Fathers and how they relate to their children. Mothers and how they relate to their children. That's my argument. Now let me show you some scriptures that I think will prove it. Here's a scripture that I think you all probably know very well. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. You are the light of the world. Speaking to disciples of Jesus. Speaking to those who are following him. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I look at this and I see, what's Jesus doing? I look at the call. The call here is, I mean, here's just this huge call. You're the light of the world. I think sometimes we immediately jump to that. I've got to be the light to the whole world. How in the world am I going to do that? We look at the world. We look at the way that it's crumbling. We see the institutions that are falling to the ground. We see the broken homes. How in the world can I be a light to the world? I'm just one person. All I have is my little realm of influence, which is a key here. Because what does Jesus say? You're the light of the world, and then where's he move? A city set on a hill can't be hidden, then where's he move? Nobody takes a light in a house and puts it under a basket. Do you see how Jesus worked from the very broad, the world, down to the city level, which I can grasp a little bit more, and then down to the home level, which I most certainly can grasp? I can get a handle on my little thing, the little orbit around me, especially my wife and my kids. When my influence is there, when my emphasis is there, when I'm shining a light there, in that way, I'm a light to my neighbor. And when I'm a light to my neighbor, he may catch on fire. And then soon enough, that may spread and you may have a city. And that city may begin to make waves. What I'm saying is, I think as a church, we've abandoned the foundational institution. And we've said, we need to evangelize, we need to evangelize, we need to knock more doors, we need to be saving more souls. Not if, in the pursuit of saving these souls, I'm, I'm neglecting the ones that are directly under my care, who I have the greatest amount of influence over. I want you to imagine if every Christian gave all of their attention, their whole lifelong Christian walk, they gave all their attention to their children. Within a generation, depending on how many kids we had, the church would be bigger. And I think there'd be a broader influence in society as you build that kind of ground where there's multiple generations of strong, steadfast Christians. I would venture to say that most of us in this room are probably not first-generation Christians. Most of us are probably second-generation Christians. Most of us owe our faith to someone before us. What if we put our emphasis there? Where does our light shine from? Well, I do go to Africa on occasion, and I like going there, but that's two weeks out of my year. That's 14 days. I got another 351 that I'm at home. Where am I going to put the majority of my influence, the majority of my light? Right there in my house. In fact, I cannot be a legitimate light to my neighbor or even to my church family. If I'm not a light to my wife, if I'm not a light to my son and to my daughter, I can't be. It will be fake. It will be forced. 
the emphasis needs to be in the home. Now, I want you to listen to the scripture. This is Psalm 127. It says, it says this. Now, I, I don't have time to exegete the entirety of this, but listen to this word. This is amazing. Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The idea, the idea there is, if the Lord isn't building my home, then all of my efforts in the home, all of my efforts to educate, all of my efforts to get my kid to be a better athlete, all my, eff- all my efforts, he says, ultimately are fleeting. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Well, then he says something really interesting. I said earlier that families come together and there is a purpose and there is a mission and it has to do with bearing children, has to do with getting those children to Jesus, and that's how the kingdom's being built. But look at what it says. After it says this, it says, Behold... Children, behold always is is meant to get your attention. Lord needs to build the house. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. By the way, the church needs to redeem the beauty and the wonderful, awesome, glorious reality of children. I see a world right now that says, you know what's better than a child? A little dog. Well, no, it isn't. It isn't. A a child is an image bearer of God. It's the greatest glory that there is. This work of bringing children into the world and raising them up is more glorious than anything else we could be involved in. He says children are a heritage. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like Now watch this. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Now, I, as I said, I don't have time to expose the entirety, of the entirety of this passage. But what he's saying is, if the Lord builds your home, and if you raise up children in covenant with God, what he says is, the enemy will be defeated. How are we going to overcome this world? Choctaw Church of Christ, focus on your families. F- marriages, focus on your marriage. Husbands, focus on loving your wives. Wives, focus on loving and respecting your husbands. Parents, focus on coming together with a game plan for these little ones to raise them up. This is their souls we're talking about. How are we going to overcome and win the world around us by keeping our kids? When our focus is there, I promise we'll get the attention of the world. They will see, and it will be uh, without effort, without direct effort. It's just going to happen because they're going to see it. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that this marital institution, husbands and wives, he says that represents Jesus and the church. And then he gets into talking about children in chapter 6. Husbands and wives represent Jesus Christ and the church. It's a microcosm of it. When marriage is what it's supposed to be, it speaks to God's beautiful design of Jesus who is the head, who's sacrificial but very much the leader, and the church who is the body, who is supportive of it and respectful of him. When that image is cast out into the cosmos, it does something. It changes things. And what we do in our families by bearing children is 
we are showcasing the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ and his church. When Jesus comes together with his bride, fruit is born. Good things come. Blessings come. And we ought to be doing the very same thing in the home. Let me give some suggestions. Is it 7.53? That, that's what that clock back there says. I got seven minutes, six minutes now. Let me give some suggestions as fast as I can because I got a lot of them. That was all the theology. I thought I could get through it faster than I did. There's a lot more that I could have said. But let me give some practical suggestions. We need to focus on the family. So here's my suggestions. Number one for husbands. Husbands need to learn to love like Jesus Christ. What that means in context, if you're looking at Ephesians 5, is that the husband is sacrificing for her. The husband is cherishing her. And the husband is leading her. He has an idea of where they're going. The the husband knows, we're here. I want to be there. I want to move my family there. That's The husband knows we're going here, and I want to get us here. Just like Lord Jesus, that's what we're called to do, to sacrifice for her. This, we, this means we need to give up our selfish lusts, whatever they may be. Men that are struggling with any kind, men that are struggling with their phones, struggling with the computer. That has a bearing on the family. Not just, not just in the hurting of the spouse. But very much so even in the masculinity of the man himself. When a man is guilt-ridden, he is not the man he's called to be. He puts his head down, he looks at his shoes, and there's not much drive. But when we clear out those things, when we sacrifice ourselves for our families, good things come. We need to sacrifice for her, turning off the cell phone when she's speaking. She's talking. We need to give her our attention. She needs to know that her voice is heard. Well, we need to cherish her. That doesn't just mean giving flowers on occasion, but it does mean that. But it also means understanding that in in her house, which it is her house, Titus says that the woman is a house despot. Believe it or not, that's what the Greek word says. She's the man, she's the ruler of the home. Ecodespotis is the Greek word. It's compound, it means house despot. When you go in there, that's that's her that's her house. Now you're the leader of the family. We don't want to throw that out, but that's her house. So men, we, when we go in there, we're going to cherish her. She says, take off your shoes at the front door. Take them off. And enforce it with the little ones. Invest her with that authority. Let her know you back it up. That's how we cherish our wives. And we lead her. And this demands sometimes some difficult things. I'll speak very pointedly here. Sometimes your wife... See, women mean well in this regard. And please understand what I'm about to say. Women like to be cute. They like to be dressed up. They like to, but sometimes they don't understand the way that that may come across to someone out in society. Let me just give a real example here. Let's say that your wife comes home with a shirt for your daughter that shows half her belly. 
And you as a man know that's not the kind of thing that I want my daughter exposing. In fact, I know the way men think. I know the way people are going to be viewing her. A man cannot sit there and put his head down and bury his head in the sand and pretend that's not happening. He needs to say, no. She's not having that shirt. Sometimes it's going to demand that kind of strength. We do need to lead. So that's for husbands. Now, um, where am I going here? Fathers. Fathers need to learn from the father. Where do I learn how to be a father? I learn how to be a father from the father. Let me read to you quickly a scripture. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There are so many lessons that can be learned just right here, but let me give you uh, four of them. Number one, the Father's door was open. The heavens opened up. There was an access between Father in heaven and Jesus. The Father's door was open. The child knew there is access. My, my dad's available. I can go to him. Fathers, we can't be so busy with our work and our schedule and lawn care and all the stuff that we're doing, our sports, whatever, that when our kid comes in the room, we just shut him out. They need to know your priority, not this game. Your priority, not my job. God kept the door open. And the presence of the Father, number two, was made known. The presence of the Father came down by way of the Holy Spirit so that the child actually felt the presence. I go out to eat sometimes. We go out to eat kind of rarely. We do a lot of cooking at home. But when we do go out to eat, one of the things that I witness and observe a lot is people on their cell phones. And kids are sitting there. And they may be trying to get the attention of mom and dad. And where are they? Yes, they're present physically. There isn't a closed door. But the presence is not felt. And the child knows it. These are eternal souls. We're molding them. We're making them. We're shaping them. There's big fish to fry. Give them the feeling and the sense of that presence. Number three, the father announced his son. This is my son. And I think, fathers, we need to be taking opportunities to do that. Wherever we go, this is my son. That's my daughter there. Let them know. Tell them before they go to bed. You're my son. You're my daughter. I will never leave you or forsake you. All that is mine is yours. Every night before I go to bed, I tell the boys, I love you with all my heart. I'm proud of you. I will never leave you or forsake you. All that is mine is yours. And I enjoy you. Every night. They know that's coming. We need to take those opportunities to announce them in those kinds of ways. And we need to praise them. The father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Take opportunity to praise him. There's a whole thing called father hunger. Children are looking for it. They're desirous of it. They want to say, I made this drawing for you. Even if it's the silliest drawing in the world, let them know how thankful you are for it. Praise them for it. Build them up. They're hungry for it. That's building them. These are big things. I understand the bell just rung. Can I have just a few more minutes? Fathers need to learn from the father. Patriarchs need to think multi-generationally. Patriarchs need to think multi-generationally. When Isaiah came to King Hezekiah, when Judah, the last tribe to remain faithful, when Judah fell off the horse and God said, you're going into captivity, Isaiah came to Hezekiah and he said, you're going into captivity and your sons are going to be eunuchs. 
in a foreign king's house. And Hezekiah responded this way. He said, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought to himself, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? You know, there, there are people now that understand we're on a burning ship. Some are willing to jump ship. Some are just thinking, you know what? America, hold on five more years. I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm just glad that I won't be here when the big problems come. But the people that come from us, our own progeny, they'll inherit it. Our children are going to live in it. Our grandkids will as well. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man, a good patriarch is thinking down the line, what can I do to bless those who will come? Fathers, grandfathers, church leaders, elders, preachers, think multi-generationally. What can we do now to keep this church standing strong and to give a good heritage to those who are going to come? Wives need to submit to their husbands and have a deeper tie to the home. The Bible says that all over the place. In this culture, in a feminist culture, that's not a good thing to say, but I must say it because the Lord God said it. We say we want to be the people who speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible's silent. Oftentimes, we don't speak where the Bible speaks, and we're super loud where it's silent. Some of the hardest things need to be said. And I do believe women need to submit to their husbands and have a deeper tie to the home. She's not tethered to the home. You look at the Proverbs 31 woman, she was industrious, she did a lot, but her duties at home were not abandoned in pursuit of career. If your job keeps you from doing those things at home that your kids need, the nourishing, the raising, the food they need, and all of that, if it keeps you from that, you need to be closer to the home. And wives are commanded to be in submission. And the thing is, a lot of times our love is conditional. I'll submit to you so long as you're respectful. But Peter himself says, even if he's a pagan, even if your husband's a bad man, be in submission. Because he says, this is how you win him. This is how you may win him. Parents need to lovingly tell their children no. And what I mean is we need to have higher walls. We shouldn't have them on every kind of social media. In fact, until they get to a certain age, they shouldn't be on it at all. There should be lots of parental controls. As a father, I'm looking all the time on the things that are trying to get my kids. Don't let those things get your kids. Don't don't let them be exposed to them. Just shut it off. Don't look. Make TV a rarity. Make media a rarity. Send them into the backyard to climb a tree. I really mean that because we now know a generation that grew up with tech. And I speak with some of these kids. A lot of dark places because of what they were exposed to there. So we need to build higher walls and protect them in that way. Let me conclude by saying this. I understand this is a heavy-handed lesson. But y'all don't ever have to invite me back here again. So I, I had my one opportunity to just say what I thought needed to be said. But I do speak the same way at Kingfisher. They've gotten used to it by this point. Because as I see it, some of the hardest truths, we've been so afraid to say them because we've built our society on the opposites. We have to speak the truth. If we love souls, we've got to speak the truth. What I'm saying is that the most important institution in the world is the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. And as goes the church, so goes society.
Build your homes. So my call is for leaders here to pray for stronger families. My call is for the elders and those that are leading this church to put strong families on the agenda. Say, at Choctaw, that's our focus. What can we do to build stronger marriages? What can we do to get more involved parents, to give them with the tools that they need? And by grace, we'll do these things. Let me close with a very quick quote from uh, Bodie Bauckham. He said, we have to remember, a lot of times we, we say that our children are the missionaries. Go out and be a light. We have to remember that our children are not the missionaries. They are the mission field. So that's where our attention and our energy should be. Thank you for your attention.